Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Oh, happy Friday. It's April 16th. So as many of you are aware, we typically open the show with three or four different news stories before launching into an interview with one of our cherished guests. However, we are skipping our news roundups this week. And the reason before you ask is because we have not one, but two interviews this week. And you're going to want to hear both of these because both guests have ties to the most impactful event of this past week. And that is the direct listing of Coinbase. Coinbase is of course the cryptocurrency exchange that was founded in San Francisco around nine years ago and has made a killing in transaction fees as the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum in particular have soared in recent months and more people have jumped into crypto investing. Indeed, the platform, which now boasts 56 million users, is valued as I speak at around $87 billion on the heels of its offering, or more than 10 times where it was valued in 2018 by its private investors. Which brings us to our guests. Gary Tan of Initialized Capital and and Katie Hahn of Andreessen Horowitz. Both are connected in their own ways to Coinbase, and candidly, both through that connection have had an exceedingly lucrative week. Yet both say, convincingly, that they're long Coinbase, and for somewhat different reasons. Although both are investors and major proponents in the company, these are two very different interviews, in fact, and we hope you enjoy them both and learn as much from them as we did, especially if you're trying to figure out whether or not it's too late to jump on the Coinbase bandwagon. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you're a venture capitalist, you should really stop using Excel. VCs are funding the next generation of technology, yet many firms leave important data scattered across hundreds of spreadsheets. If this sounds familiar, allow me to introduce you to Kushim. That's K-U-S-H-I-M. Kushim is an all-in-one software solution that manages your investments from deal screening all the way to exit. Kushim is tailored for VCs with integrations such as PitchBook and Crunchbase. You can customize your workflow, track KPIs, and collaborate with your stakeholders. It's time to kick the Excel habit. Go to kushim.vc. That's K-U-S-H-I-M dot V-C and book your demo today. Up first, Gary Tan, the co-founder of the venture firm Initialized Capital, and before launching the fund in 2015, a partner with Y Combinator. It was at the famous Accelerator program that Tan wrote the very first check to Coinbase, a company that he and initialized co-founders Alexis Ohanian and Harj Tagger then backed again once they struck out on their own. As you'll hear Gary say, that later funding, $1.3 million from initialized, is now valued at around $800 million. Still, he says the firm is holding on to much of its stake because of a very specific insight that he has into Coinbase, and that's thanks to another company of his that was acquired last year by Coinbase and may well prove a major revenue engine in the coming years. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always really fun to talk to you. Always fun to hang out with you guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> Big fan of the pod. and Thank you so much for having me. So, Gary, I'm very happy for you. You've obviously been in the headlines this week, including because you wrote Coinbase, its very first angel check. 
I know that Brian Armstrong was at the time working at Airbnb, but fiddling around with a company that you had funded and you noticed him through his work on that startup. Yeah, I have to call out another YC alum and initialized alum named Jason Tan. He was the founder of SIF Science, which is an anti-fraud platform. USV did the A. They've been growing super fast. Also very successful startup. Airbnb was their lighthouse best customer. And Brian was the engineer who was in charge of implementing SIF Science at Airbnb in 2011. And I remember getting an email from Jason to us at YC saying, bad news for SIF Science. Brian is leaving to start a company. Good news for YC. You should fund them. Incredible. And and part of the reason was that Brian, of all people, would stay up until 2 a.m. to debug the software with Jason on a regular basis. And that was really powerful to me because, I mean, who's going to work until 2 a.m. unless you actually love doing what you're doing? And I think that that's where the mission orientation really comes from for him. And it's just crazy to see how that's carried out going on 10 years. Maybe because of this conversation with Jason you would have greenlit anything Brian did, but it sounds like you were alone in wanting to do this deal at YC. Is that accurate? There's a two-step process to get into YC. One is the application to get the interview. And then I think it was Paul Graham and Harge Tagger who actually interviewed him and did the accept. That was that first step. And Paul Graham himself made the call on the second step. And what year was that when you wrote that first check with Y Combinator? Oh, it was 2012. YC funded it, I believe, in April or May. And then Batch started June. And then I had just raised $7 million from Alex Bangash, who's a a great fund of funds operator, and he does directs now too. But he had been trying to invest with Y Combinator for many years. And Jessica and Paul said, there's probably not a way for you to do that. But here you should meet Gary and Harge and Alexis, who are raising a very small $7 million fund. And he ended up giving us 5 million of the seven. And Coinbase was one of our very first checks, a $50,000 check at $9 million pre-money cap note. So that was way back in 2012. The price of Bitcoin is now $56,000 and change. What was the price of Bitcoin back then? I think like at that moment, it was something like $14. I'm wondering how it worked with Y Combinator, because you had this opportunity to invest in this company and this founder that you liked immediately. Did that create any complications with Y Combinator as Coinbase started to take off? Did you end up getting a bigger stake in the company than Y Combinator? I think YC still ended up getting more. And then the other thing that was true back then was it was commonplace for YC partners to invest in YC companies. And it is true that we were quite successful and we were asked to stop doing that, which we did. And that's when I helped raise YC Continuity. And then once that got up and running in 2015, that's when I decided to spin out. And so I love YC. It was in super great shape. And it's more fun to be a pirate than to join the Navy. (laughs) Uh, So I, I jumped ship and worked on our third $125 million seed fund back in 2016. So basically, when YC established the Continuity Fund around that time, it was like, okay, guys, we don't want the partners investing in follow-on front rounds. We're going to do it ourselves. And if you want to do it, it goes across. And I helped put that together. And uh, they're doing great. Well, you've done so well on your own with Initialized. In addition to Coinbase, you were one of the first investors in Instacart. But talking about Coinbase, and forgive me for being obnoxious, but because it's in the headlines, 
I keep seeing numbers floated around about how much Initialize has made from this investment. I've read most recently your $300,000 investment into Coinbase is, as of yesterday, worth around $2.4 billion. Is that accurate? So I blended our first early checks from Fund One of Initialized with YC's initial investment of $20,000 for 6%. And that's how I got that number. So yeah, it's a blended number, but I have a YouTube channel to think of. So I have to work backwards from the <laughs> thumbnail. <laughs> it's like, what are people going to click on? <laughs> so, If you detangle your return from YC's, is it closer to $800 million? Yep. That's phenomenal. Were you restricted in any way from selling? No. Nobody was. Yeah. I mean, the company didn't need to raise money. It's a profitable company. And I think that that is a super powerful thing to really know. This is not a speculative cash burning entity. This is a company with a durable moat and hyper profitability. Can you tell us what percentage of your stake you sold? I sold a basically a fraction of my shares. To be frank, this exit to me and my family is actually quite meaningful, just like it is for a lot of the other people who started off as engineers. I had credit card debt as recently as 2011 before I became an investor at Y Combinator and initialized. All that being said, I'm holding the vast majority because I'm net super long on both crypto and Coinbase. Which is great. And again, I'm, I'm happy for you and your success. I am wondering about the valuation. A lot of equity research houses have pointed out that the margins are just so fat right now. And invariably, competition is going to drive those down to potentially zero. Robinhood's already offering commission-free trades on crypto. So how do you think about the company going forward and how it rationalizes this valuation? In the short term, you think about it as an exchange. In the long term, I think you need to think about it as what is the trusted on-ramp and user experience, and then also the infrastructure. So we were actually the first seed investors and largest institutional holder of stock in Bison Trails, which was bought by Coinbase late last year. This is a company that I think a lot of people should pay attention to even now because all of crypto is switching from proof of work, which is actually quite wasteful. That's how Bitcoin and Ethereum currently get to consensus. Pretty much all of the newer blockchains are shifting to proof of stake, which is far more efficient. And that was a huge strategic buy for Coinbase. It sets them up to be sort of like a cloud infra company, the way AWS is. And if you spend time with the annual report in Amazon, you'll realize that is a massively profitable space. And so I think that that is the way to think about Coinbase long-term. Microsoft is not one revenue stream. It's not a one-trick pony. They started with an OS. They used their advantage in operating systems to build applications. And then OS and applications together also allowed them to build server software. And I think that you see companies basically stack durable advantages in multiple industries. And they do it on the back of hiring the best software engineers, the best designers, and the best product people. And that is enabled by A, being extremely profitable, and then B, actually being a great place to work. <laughs> And that's the same for Coinbase as it is for Google, Facebook, Amazon, any of the big tech giants as well. That's really interesting. So I know that right now, obviously, it's very transaction dependent. I think something like 86% of its revenue came from taking a cut off of transactions. I don't know where that other 14% comes from. I don't know if you can tell me that. But also, has it lined up customers for this cloud infrastructure service that you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, Bison Trails is already the preferred infra company for 
a great number of the top 100 new crypto blockchains, the L1s that have come out over the past few years. And then the other thing that I'll highlight is Ethereum 2.0 is coming. And Ethereum is the giant that's going to switch to proof of stake. And if you're holding Ethereum right now, you're going to care about 2.0. I think that that's going to be a big opportunity because when you think about mining and proof of work, that might be sort of a one-time thing. But proof of stake, it's actually a lot more like locking up that Ethereum so that it gives you a yield every month, every block. You're going to have to trust a place that will custody it and basically put it up for stake in a secure way. And so Bison Trails and Coinbase are extremely well positioned for that pretty crazy shift. And the space moves so quickly that we're going to see a lot more of this. This is a very general question, but there was a lot of interest in using Bitcoin for transactions. And to date, it seems as if Bitcoin has primarily been used as a substitute for gold. Do you see a future for cryptocurrencies to be used in transactions? And could that be for small transactions as well? Yeah, I think so. You know, what's funny is for some of that, I think we need a step function in scalability. And we're starting to see that in other blockchains coming online. I think Solana is super interesting. For the longest time, we would say Ethereum is the gold standard for developers to create distributed applications. But we're starting to see alternative blockchains finally ship and become the choice of smart developers. I always look at that. Like, if you go where the builders are, they're going to go build the future. And so it really matters who has the best API, who has the best scalability. And in the end, it comes back to fees. And so to your point, right now, the fees on Bitcoin and Ethereum, because they're both proof of work, they're pretty considerable. So they're probably not what you would choose for small micropayments and things like that. There are things like Lightning that bring down the cost, but add complexity. But I think that underscores this whole space. It's so early still. I think Digital gold as a narrative is way farther along. If all of crypto is at $2 trillion and gold value is at $10 trillion, that is probably the narrative that is farthest along. And if you told me 10 years ago that that was enough to drive Coinbase to IPO, I would be very surprised. I'm much more interested in software services that frankly resemble DeFi. And then for Coinbase to be that on-ramp to enable that, we're talking about wallets, dApp browsers, being able to support multiple coins, being able to switch between them very quickly. That's where I think a lot of this will go. You're not so concerned with competitors that are consumer facing like Robinhood, because this is really more of a backend service and people realize. Yeah, well, it's that. And there are so many other services that are coming. Robinhood can't hire the talent that Coinbase can. And I think that that's what really matters in the long term. Can you build a culture that is always on the bleeding edge. And if you want to ship bleeding edge software and proof of stake, you're going to go out and look at all of the teams that are working on proof of stake and you're going to want to go work for Coinbase because there's not really another choice. You, know, you can work with the number two, number three, but you're not going to get to write code that pushes the envelope the way you can with the, the number one. And I think that that is what we're going to see. Bitcoin, digital gold, and the transaction fees there if you're going to compete on fees, these things are raced to the bottom. And so Coinbase will continue to build new services, new platforms on top. NFT, for instance, was a thing that we weren't even talking about three or four months ago. And so there are new services, new ways to be that on-ramp. And Coinbase is just super uniquely 
suited to be able to take all of those things on. I wonder if this explains to some extent why they haven't focused more on customer service, which has been an ongoing issue for the company. I had written about it in January. When I wrote about it, I did hear from a number of people who were really frustrated because they couldn't get to their assets. They'd gotten locked out of their account for this or that reason and couldn't get the company to reopen the account. And so they felt like they were losing money. I just wondered as a publicly traded company, if you think they do still need to invest more resources into that. I mean, have live agents. I feel like a publicly traded exchange comes with different expectations. I think that's a good point. When you're in, this is a service, the service has to work well. And I don't think it's that different than what PayPal or Venmo has to deal with. The volume of support coming in is overwhelming and astounding. And I think a lot of this comes back to how do you make the best anti-fraud and how do you prioritize real users instead of an army of bots? And that's a very hard problem. And I think one that Coinbase remains very well suited to solve. But I agree with you that that's one of those things that will always be in the background for Coinbase to continue to level up. Now Coinbase is a public company and it will have some expectations that it will have to meet on Wall Street and it will have to communicate its mission to the outside world. And what you're saying, I think, is a little bit different than what I've been hearing about Coinbase and what it does Do you think that the company is equipped to communicate that larger message and when will it go about doing that? What's funny is once you are at the scale, there's just so many smart people with so many different initiatives. And I guess it's hard for me to really say. For me, I never worked at the company. And so I've uh, placed a great many people from my network in as executives and as engineers And I can tell you they're really smart. They're really empowered to do the right thing for the customer and figure out new products. And I think telling the story is a big part of it, which is extra hard because crypto is so expansive. They just have to continue to have smart people figuring out what that next thing is. Again, Bison Trails becoming a part of Coinbase. They saw around the corner, they knew that all of the new L1 blockchains coming up, the majority of them were going to be proof of stake. When Facebook Libra was going full bore, that was a really super interesting opportunity. And I think they're going to return to that with Deem. And when we get to the crypto promised land, every participant will actually have to run their own servers, right? Otherwise, it's just centralized, right? And so I think that that's one of a whole bunch of different things that are on the plate for Coinbase now and into the future. And that's why trying to comment on where Coinbase will go right now is relatively hard because it's like saying when Microsoft IPO'd, could you predict that server software or SQL server was going to become a part of their offering or that dev division there was going to become such a driver of revenue? Or when Amazon came out as a bookseller, could you have predicted that AWS was going to be such a giant lion's share of their profit margin? I mean, these things are quite unpredictable and we're going to find out. I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that Brian Armstrong is a good communicator to the street? Do you think he's somebody who can message what the company is doing quarter by quarter in order to make sure that there isn't a huge drop off? The majority of my experience is still super early stage. I'm learning alongside you guys watching this company. This is one of the first IPOs that has happened for me and for Initialized, the only other one being Open Door via SPAC last year. So I don't have an informed opinion yet. (laughs) Can I take a rain check and get back to you? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Gary, one last question. 
What do you see as Coinbase's biggest competition? I don't know also if you think of this as a winner-take-all market and because Coinbase is 11% of the market cap of all cryptocurrencies right now, it's got such a lead that it's impossible to catch at this point. Paul Graham wrote a really interesting essay about how fast these things come together. IBM took 45 years to reach a billion dollars in 2020 inflation-adjusted revenue, and they started in 1898. HP took 25 years. Microsoft, founded in 1975, took 13 years. Coinbase did it in eight. And then if you look at all of those different companies, often they started with one line of business. With IBM, perhaps it was tabulators. With HPs, perhaps it was oscilloscopes. Microsoft, it was MS-DOS. And so if you look at the revenue structure of how these companies make money today, they don't resemble what they started with at all. And so I guess it's not a satisfying answer, I realize. But for me, it's like, we got to zoom out because... When the future isn't written yet, there's a few companies out there like the IBMs, the HPs, and the Microsofts that have the market position. And in this case, the relationship with the user being that clean, well-lit place when a lot of things are scary. For me, as a designer and as an engineer, I always return to that. What a website is, is a relationship with, in this case, 56 million users. And there are 7 billion people on this planet, right? And so if I zoom out, when the personal computer revolution was happening, imagine having a computer on your desk and being one of the first 50 million people to have one, right? And then today, billions of people have it. And so it truly feels day one to me. There have been home runs in the first half of the first inning, but we have eight and a half more innings to go. Well, it's been an exciting week and we're certainly going to be watching the company as it evolves. Gary, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Great to see you. Thank you guys for having me. Really appreciate the questions. Thanks, Gary. Talk to you soon. And now our interview with Katie Hahn, a former federal prosecutor who was invited to join the board of Coinbase back in 2017 as an independent board member. Service that came with shares now valued at around $150 million. Her work with the company also attracted the attention of Andreessen Horowitz, an early investor in Coinbase that brought Han aboard as a general partner in 2018 and whose stake in Coinbase, it owned around 11% of the company at the time of its direct listing on Wednesday, is now valued at a whopping $11.3 billion. Because the firm is a registered investment advisor, Han couldn't share insights into what the firm will do with that stake. She made clear ahead of our conversation that none of our chat should be interpreted as investment advice and that she wasn't directing her statements at any investor or prospective investor in the Andreessen Horowitz funds. Thankfully, she was able to talk freely about some of her fascinating work at the Justice Department, where she took on murderers, organized crime, and corrupt officials, among other things. She also shared where Andreessen Horowitz, which now oversees two funds dedicated exclusively to crypto investments, is pouring a lot of that capital right now. We are so thrilled to have Katie Hahn with us today. As listeners and readers will probably know, Katie is a rock star. (laughs) She spent a decade as a federal prosecutor, focused on fraud, cyber, corporate crime, and was in that role until about 2016, 2017. And of course, what we're talking about today is Coinbase. And it was around that time, Katie, that you joined the board. So I'm curious to know if the two things were related. You're leaving government and getting involved in Coinbase, or you'd already left and Coinbase came calling? 
Yeah, so I had decided that I was probably going to move on to what I call my next chapter. I've been doing this federal prosecutor thing for a good decade, and I had just finished up a very intense two-month biker murder trial, and I was just ready for something else. I loved all of the time that I spent doing those kind of cases involving what I'll call real crime, a lot of drama, a lot of human stories. But at some point, I decided I was ready for something different. And so just as I was thinking of leaving, my superiors in the Justice Department came to me and said, all of that drive that you had for violent crime and organized crime, why don't we have you start working on cybersecurity matters? And in fact, we have a perfect first assignment for you. It involves this new technology called Bitcoin, and we need you to go investigate that and find out what that's all about. I actually came to know Coinbase through some of the work I was doing on crypto cases in the government in the early days. I founded the U.S. government's first cryptocurrency task force out of the Justice Department. And at the time we had the task force, part of our job was actually to go meet with companies or entrepreneurs in the space and get to know what they were up to. And by the way, how we could work with them. Of course, the government's objectives didn't always align with the crypto industries like any industry. But sometimes there were some synergies, like sometimes they might need to reach someone in the government at one of these companies. And likewise, many times, and I would say actually more often, people in the government needed to reach people in these companies. And that happens in all different industries. So that's actually how I first got to know Coinbase. And Coinbase was not the only crypto company that I was interfacing with in those government days. There were many others, but that's actually how I first came to know Coinbase. Because not everyone is going to know the specifics of your career. You mentioned some of the cases you were involved with. And one of them was the Silk Road case, the black market or dark net marketplace. Seems like you played a pretty important role in prosecuting Ross Ulbricht, but also sussing out through the blockchain to double agents. Just to factually make one correction, I actually did not prosecute Russell Brecht. I did not prosecute the Silk Road case. What you're describing, I did prosecute, which is what we'll call the twist to the Silk Road case. The twist was that a couple of the agents on one of the task forces that was investigating Russell Brecht and the Silk Road actually turned out to be, well, let's call them rogue, certainly double agents working both against the government while being federal agents, but then also working against Russell Brecht and the Silk Road. At a high level, I would just say that I did get a tip that we had a rogue federal agent. And I thought it was a conspiracy theory. So I thought I would go look into that, mostly to just clear this individual's name, honestly. Was this a career federal government employee? Yeah, well over a decade federal agent. Uh, And it turned out there were two and they weren't working together. Which is even weirder. Yeah, right. The other one was also a career federal agent, which is extremely rare. It happens on TV where you have corrupt police or law enforcement. But I can tell you that in reality, having been a federal prosecutor for over a decade. This was certainly a first for me. And so I looked into the high level and what we found was that, let's just say hundreds of thousands of dollars at the time, now it would be tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars in today's prices of cryptocurrency moving around. And when we looked into it initially, we thought, well, it must just be some poorly backstopped undercover operation. But the more we looked at it, the transfer patterns were not making sense. And they turned out to be going to personal accounts, which then really piqued our interest. Companies like Coinbase, and it's not just Coinbase, but exchanges that kept compliant records were instrumental to our ability to solve that case. Two things were, number one, the information that we were getting from those exchanges, but number two, the blockchain itself. Without the blockchain, I can definitively say we never would have solved that case. 
those agents would still be federal agents today. Had they just been using wires or fiat, we would never have been able to solve the case because indeed they were going to financial institutions across the globe, flashing the badge and saying, delete these records. They could not do that on the blockchain. Another thing that you were focused on as a prosecutor was money laundering. And I wonder what you think of NFTs as a way of executing on this. I know that there are much easier ways probably to transfer money, but I wonder if because it's more challenging, it's also harder to track. Somebody I interviewed recently said all that's really needed is two parties that are involved to effectively execute a transaction successfully because these prices are sort of all over the place. Well, money laundering is something I prosecuted at the Justice Department. I prosecuted one of the largest ever, if not the largest ever, online money laundering case, a case against BTCE. We also led an investigation into the Mt. Gox hack. And all of these things, by the way, we harnessed blockchain technology to help solve the cases. So it wasn't just that Silk Road twist. It's been many others and many others that are not yet unsealed, where prosecutors and investigators are actually harnessing crypto to combat illicit finance and money laundering, ironically. I did read your article, Connie. I read it a couple of times and I found it really interesting because at first I thought, oh yeah, NFTs. Now let's see, how could criminals exploit this? Because the thing about criminal actors is they are often early adopters of new technologies. I've said before, they're beta testers in many cases. When you think about money laundering, the thing you have to step back and realize is that 99.9% of money laundering crimes with fiat today succeed, which is staggering. I think there's this perception out there that, oh, if wires or fiat money or physical goods are used, money launderers can't do their thing. That's just completely contrary to reality. What I would say is that crypto is a step-level function improvement. The reason I say that is because it leaves these what I call digital breadcrumbs in a way that the physical world or cash, even wires, by the way, the wires are somewhat digital, physical goods don't quite leave. So with NFTs, I think that ultimately, actually, it makes it easier for investigators to trace because of those digital breadcrumbs. I was involved in plenty of physical seizures and forfeitures in my days of prosecuting money launderers. And the thing is, we couldn't always get to the physical objects because they're far easier to squirrel away. People are able to go hide physical objects much more easily than they are able to hide things like digital objects. Now, that might sound surprising at first, but you have this immutable record and you have this ability now online to trace the trading history and the provenance of digital goods. It actually makes it much easier for investigators than dealing with things like physical goods, whether it's artwork or whether it's watches or jewelry is a very popular thing for money launderers too. That's interesting. David Pakman, who you may know, who's also involved with Dapper Labs, basically said the same thing. He said, even if something gets by government now, maybe they find it two years from now through uh, those alphanumeric strings. Can you tell us a little bit about how many more deals you're seeing than you were perhaps six months ago and, and also what your pacing is like right now? We launched our first crypto fund years ago. And we've been making crypto investments for several years. We're deploying currently out of our second crypto fund. And I think it's really exciting to start seeing a lot of these things work and capture mainstream attention. And just frankly, there's been a lot of launches also in the last six months. So that's also been really exciting. So although the pace is definitely frenetic, it's an incredibly exciting time in the space. Obviously, yesterday was a milestone for Coinbase, but also just for the entire crypto ecosystem. In in terms of pace and how many deals we're seeing, I can tell you this is a rough estimate, but 
I would say that we've seen and done more deals in the last couple months than in the last couple years. And stay tuned for some of our announcements there because we've done a lot in this last quarter and they haven't all yet been announced. There's really an explosion of activity in the space. Now, at the same time, we're also doubling down on investments we've made years ago. And again, you talked about Dapper Labs. The Andreessen Horowitz crypto funds have invested in Dapper Labs several times over the years, including several years ago out of our first crypto fund. So it's just really exciting to see now all of the progress that that team has made. One other related question is just how the process of evaluating these crypto deals differs in comparison with traditional startups. I would say some categories are the same, which I'll talk about, and then some categories are completely different. One thing we always look for at Andreessen Horowitz, and I think in venture generally, is a founding team that has a real vision and that can execute. Coinbase is just such a tremendous case study in that. The founding team's one. The other thing that you'll recognize from traditional venture is what we call TAM or total addressable market. Just how big can this thing get? What is the market? So that's the second thing. The third thing, of course, we look at is just the product and the tech, but also along with that defensibility, what's the business model and could others come along and quickly take over on this idea? So those are some of the characteristics that are the same. Now, let me talk about two things that are really different, I think, in crypto. One is regulatory and compliance. And that's one thing that we always look for when we're evaluating crypto investments. I would also put in that category security. Have code audits been done? Vulnerabilities found? There are a number of businesses right now that are code auditors. So we always look to see what's your plan for security for any given protocol. But then on the regulatory and compliance side, particularly if you're talking about areas like decentralized finance or DeFi, we do probe a lot on what is your plan for regulatory and compliance? Because, of course, there's a lot of emphasis on decentralization, but it takes some time to get to the period of decentralization. There's like kind of the launching of the satellite into orbit. So we look at what is the compliance and regulatory strategy pre-launch, if you will. And then the second thing I think that's different is token economics. What we're investing in at Andreessen Hortz Crypto now largely are tokens. Because we're an RIA, we have that flexibility. And what we're most excited about are token investments. We still think there are plenty of equity investments that merit investment and that we're very interested in. I mean, Coinbase is a prime example of that. Coinbase, it was an equity investment, not a token investment. But we're increasingly doing a lot in the token space. I would say the majority of our funds are deployed in tokens. And so when you're talking about tokens, you want to have really thought through token economics at the outset. Has the team set aside enough tokens for the community? Once the protocol is live, what does that look like? Are they going to airdrop tokens? What's their go-to-market strategy? Are they incentivizing early employees with tokens? So I would say the token economic model is something that we look at very heavily. Katie, can I just ask you a quick question on that score? Are you saying that the firm is looking at buying tokens, i.e. buying slugs of currency versus investing in foundational technology? Well, we actually see tokens as foundational technology. We see these protocols in many cases as foundational technology. I think what you might be asking me is, are we investing in the tokens versus the equity of a particular company? Is that what you're asking? I suppose, yes. 
Yeah. And the answer is very much yes. In fact, I don't have the specific percentages for you, but I could say the vast majority of our crypto funds are deployed into the tokens themselves. We've disclosed numerous token investments and your listeners can look at our website to see which we've disclosed. But one that everyone's heard of is Bitcoin or Ethereum, for example. And so we actually hold positions in Bitcoin. We hold positions in Ethereum. But then apart from that, we hold tokens in a number of different protocols that we acquired just through acquiring tokens, not because we owned equity in a company that distributed the tokens. Now, in some instances, we have owned equity where a team has then created a token and we get token rights as part of our original equity investment. But increasingly, what we're seeing is the ability to just go buy tokens and we can buy them over the counter also on exchanges. And we are definitely doing that. Katie, has the crypto fund ever talked about what percentage of its assets are invested directly in Bitcoin and Ethereum? Is it a sizable percentage? Yeah, we've never disclosed an actual percentage, so I won't do so here. I will just say that we definitely have a sizable position in both Bitcoin and Ethereum because we've disclosed that before. Katie, obviously, I can't keep you all day, although I'd like to, because <laughs> I'm learning a lot here. But let's talk about Coinbase. I know that you've been answering this question quite a bit. Coinbase is an amazing company. As you said, they were seeking out help on the regulatory front from the early times. Of course, I think people are still stunned by the valuation. So help people understand how this company is worth what it is. Obviously, it's very reliant on transaction volume today, but it's going to be not going to be so heavily reliant on those fees going forward. So can you help listeners understand in what direction this company's headed and what they might not understand about it? Sure. It's definitely true that the company has plans to diversify from just purely transactional revenue, although make no mistake, transactional revenue continues to be an important segment of the business now, of course, but also in the future. However, I think we see diversification away from that in terms of recurring subscriptions or services. But I think the best way to think about Coinbase is right now, we really think that it's at the ground floor in some ways, because right now you have well over 100 million people around the globe. 56 million of them are on the Coinbase platform who are doing things right now with crypto, like pretty simple behaviors, buying crypto, selling crypto, or even holding crypto assets. And we really see that as a ground floor. And why that is, is we're seeing projects that are enabling entirely new industries within crypto. We've talked about one already, NFTs or non-fungible tokens. And we really see Coinbase as a portal to these new economies. I meet with a lot of crypto founders now more than ever, just because of the, the pace of deals. And the one thing that I think almost all of them have in common is they all either already have a relationship with Coinbase or they want a relationship with Coinbase. So I think that Although transaction fee revenue is important and will remain an important component of Coinbase's business, there's just so much more out there. And by the way, these are just the things we know of now, NFTs, DeFi. There are all kinds of other interesting things like digital identity. Once you can program money and you can program digital scarcity, all new kinds of possibilities emerge. And I think one of the things we've seen with crypto is we can't always predict what those new behaviors or products and services will lead to. When the iPhone came out, did we think that that would lead to behaviors like ride hailing, the gig economy, TikTok streaming, you name it. And so I think one of the things that we see for Coinbase is that they're very well positioned because they're a crypto first company to capitalize on all kinds of different behaviors in the crypto economy we don't even yet know about. 
That's a really interesting analogy. I think people are thinking, is Coinbase's most direct competition Robinhood? Or should we be thinking of it more as you're suggesting as an infrastructure company? I've been involved with Coinbase now for four years, and I did just re-up my board term. And I would say over the years I've been involved with the company, we've always discussed, whether at board meetings or strategy sessions, is Coinbase a financial services company or is Coinbase a tech company? And the answer is it's both a financial services company or a fintech company, but it's also a tech company because of all of the things I just mentioned of why Coinbase is still on the ground floor. The other thing I would just say is yesterday was this watershed moment, direct listing, now a public company. I can tell you that this morning at like 7.22, we all got an email saying, back to business. Here's what we want to talk about at the next board meeting. That's really something. They're really focused on building for the future. And I think that Coinbase being a crypto first company is really important. Crypto is a volatile space. And when prices are high, we see lots of people coming in. When prices are low, we see people pivot out. Coinbase has always maintained the course. And I think that's a really special and important thing about this company. And by the way, that's really Brian Armstrong. That's his influence. And the company follows his lead. This guy does not allow the excitement of any particular moment to overwhelm his focus on what he sees as a much broader opportunity. The company is now worth in the neighborhood of $85 billion and extraordinary wealth has been created amongst some of the employees. Others may not be at that point where they have vested or where they have those riches. It's a difficult transition for any company when there's so much money involved and there are certain executives who could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. How do you think about incentivizing people who may not have come into those riches and making sure that you maintain a level-headed culture at the company? Yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot of companies have gone through this metamorphosis before, but Look, I think people who are attracted to Coinbase are attracted for a number of reasons. Economic is certainly one of them, but the candidates I see coming through Coinbase, there's something about the vision that attracts them to the space also, by the way, not just the vision of the company, but to crypto as a movement and as a technology. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that Coinbase is the pillar of the crypto economy. So I think it's more than just economic. I can tell you that this management team who you just referenced is very much here for the long haul and is very much invested in building the future. Like I told you, it's classic Coinbase that at 7.22, the morning after the IPO, the first thing is, okay, on to the next thing. Katie, can you say what percentage of Andreessen's stake sold? I'm assuming that the firm had to take some money off the table. Yeah, Connie, unfortunately, I can't comment on any of that. It's been reported that you benefited, obviously, as a board member, which I'm happy for you. I do wonder how this impacts you personally. I think at some point in your career, we're thinking about a political appointment and given your career, your success in government, and now as an investor and a board member, those doors would be wide open to you. I just wonder how you're thinking about your own future here. My own future is I just re-upped my term at Coinbase, so I'm in it for the long haul, and I am super excited to be at Andreessen Horowitz. In many ways, I'm still pretty new at Andreessen Horowitz. I joined three years ago, and that time has just gone right by, so I have no plans to go anywhere, and certainly not into politics. Okay, okay. (laughs) We could use you. And then, Katie, I also just wanted to ask, since he was pushed through yesterday, finally, Gary Gensler, I don't know if you had dealings with him in your government role, but I'm just wondering what you make of that appointment, if you're excited. It seems like some people are. I think that the thing that I find really encouraging about Gary is he was at MIT's Digital Currency Initiative. 
And he actually taught a crypto class there. So I think that's great that he's already familiar with the subject matter. I think overall, the regulatory community is progressing as crypto mainstreams. In terms of the regulatory picture, I think the crypto industry just wants to be treated on the same level playing field with traditional financial services companies and not have any punishment for being in the crypto space. And so I am encouraged that I do think some of the tone that we're starting to see is changing a little bit. It used to be a couple years ago that all I would hear from regulators was, well, crypto is really good for illicit finance and it threatens national security. I take strong issue with that. Before I was a prosecutor, I used to be in the National Security Division in Washington, D.C., so I do also have a national security background. I care very strongly about national security. And I think the bigger national security threat, Connie, is to have the U.S., especially the regulators or the policymakers, not embrace crypto. Because I'll tell you that other countries are certainly embracing crypto. And I don't want us to get left behind, number one, just from an economic perspective, but also from a national security perspective. And so I think one of the things that the U.S. needs to do is it needs to really leverage the private sector here, because I do think that the private sector has a lot of expertise where crypto is concerned. And I think there's a lot of room still for public-private partnerships in this country. So I'm hopeful that will continue. Well, Katie, I so appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And I'm really genuinely happy for you and for Anderson. As recently as three years ago, I think people were still wondering, had you guys over-indexed on crypto? What was happening with that strategy? And so it's great to see your hard work paying off as it has. Well, thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here with you guys today. And I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our money chime. (laughs) We have another one. We haven't tried it out yet. What do you guys think of this one? (laughs) Bye, everyone. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here on Friday.